This episode of Animal Spirits is sponsored by Navaplan by Advicent. Built on the most precise calculation engine in the financial planning market, Navaplan empowers advisors to cater their services to any client from simply goals-based assessments to advanced cash flow planning analysis. To see how Navaplan helps model some of the concepts and strategies discussed on this episode, visit advicent.com slash animal spirits. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. All right. We've been talking about this for a while. Ben and I get a ton of emails. I don't even know how to quantify it. I'm going to guess we get 50 a week. So we try and get to two or three of these on a weekly basis in the show. But naturally, our doc has been getting longer and longer and longer. So we thought it would be nice to do an episode dedicated solely to listener questions. We're going to try and get to this on a quarterly basis. Later on in the show, we're going to be joined by Tom Burmeister from Advicent to answer some of the real nitty-gritty, more CFP-type questions that Ben and I probably just aren't qualified to answer. So let's jump right in. We do get a lot of good questions, so that's why we wanted to do this and knock a bunch out. Okay. I'm in my early 20s. My coworker is in their early 40s. As far as I know, they don't have any savings for retirement. They came to me for advice because they know I listen to financial podcasts and talk about it a lot. I told them first and foremost to set up their 401k to make sure they're getting a company match. Other than that, is there any other words of advice or anything you can tell me that to give them a better tip about what to do to get started? Yeah, I got some tips. Ben, you got some tips? Let's hear it. <laughs> All right. My first piece of advice for people that are in their 40s that have not really done much is they need to automate. To ask them to start developing good habits at that stage without any assistance is tough and unnecessary. It's very easy these days. Whatever service you're using, there is a way to do an automated deposit. And whatever that number is, if it's 50 bucks a month, 100 bucks a month, whatever you can do to get started, but you'd be surprised how quickly it adds up. So I've been putting $500 a month into my liftoff portfolio that's powered by Betterment. And I've been doing that for, I don't know, maybe a year and a half, and I just upped it to $600. And I checked my balance the other day. I've got like 17,000 bucks, which is not bad after not that long a period of time. So you'd be surprised how quickly it adds up. So my answer to that person is to automate. You agree? Yeah. And I also think you work your way up slowly. You can't just start off saving a bunch of money right away. If you haven't done it yet, it's going to be hard because that's like the loss aversion thing. You're going to feel like you're losing part of your paycheck. So I think you have to ease into it, even though you have to play catch up at that point. It's not totally like all hope is lost at age 40 in your 40s or even 50s. You just have to really focus on saving. And hopefully by that point, you've moved on and your other responsibilities have already been taken care of and you make a little more money and it should be a little easier. I think it's just getting started. But yeah, the 401k thing is probably the easiest automating, but the mindset change is the toughest part. Being willing to do that. You have to recommend to them that they focus more on their personal finances than their investments at that point. The investments almost don't matter. It's getting savings started and then you figure out the investments later. I do wonder though, if people that start in their early 40s feel like they already missed the boat and therefore are like way more aggressive trying to make up for lost time on the investment side. Yeah. And I looked at this in my book about saving for retirement. If you have 20 years to go, 
doubling your savings rate, you're better off than doubling your investment return. Doubling your savings rate is much easier than doubling your investment return. That's the part that is probably most often misunderstood. Is people think that building wealth is about being a good investor. It's really not. It's about being a good saver and earning a good living. That doesn't hurt. All right. Next question. Personally, I only keep about two months of living expenses in cash. If I end up with more after a few paycheck cycles, I invest it. I'm 35 years old, so I can accept more risk. I also feel like I need to accept more risk as my goal is to build wealth, not maintain a current level. One reason is that in the case of an unforeseen financial emergency, credit may not be that hard to come by. One can reverse mortgage their house, get a peer-to-peer loan, seek out lower interest credit cards or credit cards with interest-free grace periods. One could also potentially work out a payment plan for something like a huge unexpected hospital bill. Also, while forced liquidation of stocks at the wrong time could really burn you, one has to weigh that risk against the opportunity cost of missing out on all the gains year after year with the cash sitting on the sidelines. So, assuming one is young, has access to credit, and a sizable pool of liquid investments, if shit really hits the fan, is it worth keeping so much in cash? Am I being too reckless? This is like sacrilege for personal finance people, but I've come to have the same feeling as this person. Me too. This is probably personal preference, but I feel if you're planning ahead for stuff and you're saving for vacations piecemeal at a time, or you're putting stuff aside for the car breaking down occasionally, if you're planning for those infrequent events, then it takes away some of the emergency from that saving stuff. But I think if you have a financial backstop, if you have something you can tap, do you really need a year's worth of savings in your savings account? I don't think it makes sense anymore. Well, hold on. Two things. One is personal preference. So if somebody's a nervous Nelly type of person and they want to have a year, okay, that's fine. But the idea that there are multiple places to tap, I spoke about this two weeks ago. I looked into setting up a home equity line of credit from uh, Wells Fargo. They stopped doing HELOCs and cash out refis in March and they still haven't put it back. So the idea that you're going to be able to tap your home equity in a really bad recession, I don't know that I would count on that bucket of money. Well, you have to have that set up in advance. You can't go set it up after the fact. But who's to say they won't pull it? Uh, I don't know. If you have that line set up already, that seems like maybe some other bankers can let us know, but I don't think that happens that often. I don't know. I'm making that up. Maybe you're right. I mean, you're not going to tap your stock portfolio in the case of an emergency in a recession. You're pushing back against this. No, no, not too hard. I'm just saying, dude, if you lose your job in a recession, which is what happens to a lot of people in a recession... You could be in serious, serious trouble. Yeah, I understand that. But I think if you have these other places to tap that... Like what? So he said credit cards, for instance. Like the time to take credit card debt is when you really need it, not any other time. It's probably okay if you're struggling and lose your job or something and you have to go into credit card debt. That's awful for your personal finances in terms of the interest rates you pay. But in terms of a short-term solution and a bridge loan, is that the worst thing in the world? Well, let me ask you a question. You lose your job in a recession, your stock portfolio is down 30%, and you need money, and you still don't have income. Do you sell your stocks or do you put it on credit card? I mean, let's do the probabilities of this, though. I don't mean to sound harsh, but the unemployment rate got to, what, 10% in this recession? Nine out of 10 people kept their job. I'm not trying to downplay it. I'm just saying the probability of you losing your job, I think you have to weigh all these things. Yeah, there's no like cookie-cutter advice. It's all a matter of personal preference. Personally, I don't think having a 12 months in emergency fund for me makes any sense at all. I'm more about planning ahead for stuff and making sure that we're setting aside money for infrequent expenses. And then if we have a real emergency or something that we need to pay a lot of money for, we have to repair the roof on our house or something big, then you figure out another place to tap. So we have a home equity line of credit set up. You think I'm going to get it pulled in a recession. I don't think that's going to happen. That's my backstop. I don't know. 
I've never heard of someone getting their home equity line credit pulled after the fact because you have the house as a backstop. The house is collateral. So you claim. Okay, right. <laughs> That's the way that I'm looking at it too is that I don't have a huge liquid pool of cash for this scenario. I have other sources that I would tap and I don't see the need because rates are so low. I think that's part of it. All right. You want to take the next one? Yeah. I have a question about the conventional advice that recommends increasing your investment contributions over time. I'm 38. In my 20s, I was bad with money. And after a job loss in my 20s, I was broke. I was lucky enough to do with a lot of things that I'm now doing well. My partner and I make 140K between us. We own a home in the suburban Missouri. We currently save about 25% of our income, mostly in Betterment IRAs and bland ETFs and a fiddle before 401K. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that being boring and bland. My partner finds this level of saving to be excessive, but she goes along with it. Part of our deal is that we hold steady or reduce our savings rate over time so we can travel and have some of the things we currently want, but are saving instead. I don't have much doubt that we are going to have plenty to retire on. Am I introducing unforeseen risk by planning to reduce our contributions over time from 25% to 15% over the next decade compared to conventional advice that involves increasing contributions? I like this question. I don't have the personality to plan my financial life like this where I look at a spreadsheet. It's funny because we live in a spreadsheet, but I don't do that for my personal finances. I think this makes sense to me. If you have put aside a ton of money early and you can bank on the compounding and cut back a little bit over time, I think this actually makes sense. Are you pushing back a few years of your retirement? Sure, but like the balance idea, and I don't think this is the worst thing in the world if you've already taken care of a lot of stuff in your younger days. That's the whole point of like, you see all these compound interest examples of save early for your first 10 or 15 years and coast off the compounding, you can do that, I think. And if they're already saving 25% of their income, if, if something unforeseen happens and they need to go back up to it, they probably can. I like the idea of not sacrificing your younger years because probably you value a vacation in your 30s more so than you do in your 60s. But that's me. I'm 35 years old talking. I'm, I also don't want to deprive my 60-year-old self of vacation. So I think striking the right balance and not depriving like your 30s, 40s, 50s, or 60s, if you can, if you could have like a nice balance of lifestyle, I think that's probably the ultimate goal, at least for me. But if you have this planned out and you've run the numbers and you're planning taking my savings rate from X to Y, like you're already way ahead of most people. So I think the fact that you're thinking about this, you're on the right track. All right. I'm 38 years old and work at a large corporation. My portfolio is 7525 between my brokerage account and my workplace 401k. I have a young family, but a decent amount set aside. Essentially, I don't need to take big risks, but I have the time horizon and financial wherewithal to take them. My question, like everyone, I'm unaware of where to put the fixed income part of my portfolio in this low-yield environment. Recently, I stumbled upon the stable value fund in my 401k plan, which is 2.1%. I always thought this was the thing for near retirees, but now I can't think of any reason why I wouldn't have the entire fixed income portion of my portfolio in this fund. Am I missing something here? Well... Why invest in a stable value fund at 2.1% when you can invest in a 30-year treasury at 2.1%? No, I'm kidding. You're not missing anything. I think this makes good sense. We actually just talked about this. I think a lot of people did worry about stable value funds, like the 2008 crisis, because some of them got hit and maybe had some junky stuff in them. We actually talked about this in a recent investment committee meeting right, with our 401k people. These things are much more high quality than they were in the past. And if you want to be safer with your money and it takes away some interest rate risk, yeah, I don't see a problem with that. Can I give a shameless plug? Yeah. We do good work with 401ks. If you have a small business and you need help with your 401k, shoot us an email. Yeah, let us know. All right, back to the questions. Go ahead. I'm trying to figure out where to increase my retirement investments. I currently max out my Roth IRA and put 5% per week towards my 401k. 
The company I work for doesn't give us a match, but we do get a stock option that buys stock at 5% discount to the lowest price per quarter, which I contribute $70 per weekly. We can't sell the stock for a year. I want to increase my retirement savings a little, but don't know whether to increase the stock, which I get a good deal on, or the 401k. My buddy suggests I increase the stock, but I don't want to put all my eggs in one basket. Not a bad joke here. I have the 401k and three target date funds for diversification because I don't know when I want to retire. Just kidding. That's pretty good. (laughs) We've talked about how much to have in your company stock in the past before. Personally, putting all your own eggs in one basket, I like the idea of the 401k is probably simpler if you're already doing the contribution to your stock plan. Working for the company, you're already exposed to them on a risk basis if the company runs into trouble. Yes. I think generally that's good advice, but this is UPS, which is probably okay. I'm not saying that the stock doesn't have drawdowns, obviously, but I don't know. I'd be pretty excited about getting a 5% discount on the stock. Okay. You say that until Amazon comes in is is completely running logistics of the world in five years. I'm just saying that that's the risk or balance it. Increase both of them a little bit. If you don't have to go both ways, but it sounds like you're thinking on the right on the right terms here. All right. Would really love a podcast segment on at what point a person should be seriously considering shifting to a CFP versus managing their financial life on their own. I keep hearing when you no longer feel comfortable or your financial decisions have more at stake, but that really doesn't mean a whole lot. Some concrete examples would be helpful because I bet most people don't trust their own gut to be able to make that decision. My situation, I'm at the point in my career where I'm in my mid-30s and maxing out my 401k IRA. What is smart to do next? Hard to make that decision and feel confident. All right, so thank you for this question. Here's what I wrote. I wrote that there are three types of investors, those who need help and get it, those who need help but convince themselves they don't, and those who could handle everything on their own. So let's talk about the first group, those who need help and get it. These are the things that should influence your decision if you need to hire somebody. One is if you make a big mistake. If you sold stocks in March 2020 on the plunge, or even in April and May on the rebound, when you said, wow, this balance is ridiculous, they're going to roll over again. So if you sold in March, April, May, or even June, that would be a big mistake. So if you are prone to making big mistakes, I would say you need a financial advisor. And the best behavior, future behavior, is past behavior. So that's number one. Number two- You just said behavior a lot there. Did I? Yeah. Uh, Anyway, keep going. All right. I'm sorry. Number two is when you have a life event. So this can mean you have a child, you change a job, you inherit money, like something like this. If any of those trigger, hey, I need help, that would be another example. This is something that we get from time to time when you're worried about your spouse. So we have people that come to us in their late 60s, early 70s and said, you know what? I've done it myself my entire life. I'm comfortable with it, but I want to know that I have somebody in the event of an early demise. Like I want to know that I have something in place for that. Another one is, how about when you're just tired of it? Let's just say that you've accumulated a decent nest egg and you've got anxiety and stress in your daily life. And then the last thing that you want to do is come home, open a spreadsheet, look at your portfolio So I think that would be another criteria. How about when the stakes have gotten real, like really real? And that's personal. That could be $50,000, $200,000, a million, whatever that is. When you feel like the decisions have outgrown your comfort level, you could use some help. If you're asking this question, there's nothing wrong with talking to a few people, seeing what they offer and putting up some expectations in your own head about what an advisor could do for you then seeing what that person says they could do for you. There are always going to be those people who, and especially people who listen to financial podcasts like ours and read our blogs, There's some people who are always going to say, I don't need an advisor. I can do it my own. I pay attention to this stuff. And that's fine. There are people who just probably are never going to need one. 
But if you're asking the question and you're getting worried about it, there's no skin off your back for talking to someone, at least figuring out, like, does it make sense now, maybe down the road, and at least lining some people up and just figuring out what's out there. It doesn't cost you anything. Lastly, when you want to get specific about your goals. So let's say that, like, you want to buy a second home in 10 years, retire in 20 years, and you just don't have the chops to do that on your own. Financial advisor makes good sense of that situation. So I think those are the main reasons why you would hire somebody. All right. We're going to pivot away from personal finance onto investing. I am 27 years old. I started investing in December 2017. My mom passed away in June 2019 from ALS. Really sorry to hear that. When COVID hit in March 2020, I put most of that inheritance money to work because it was sitting in cash. The gains since I have done that is insanity. Square, PayPal, Pen, nice. Basically, all stocks people my age invest in are just up and to the right. Yes, they are. I know I am not a genius, and Ben's tweet about the markets and everyone thinking they are geniuses resonated with me. I do own companies like Coke, Procter & Gamble, and Verizon and all those boring companies that I don't do anything uh, day after day. I hold these because things are too good, and I know that will end. My question, what do you tell people that have made ridiculous money in the market so far? Do I take some of those Square, PayPal, Pen games and put them into PNG and Verizon because that is a responsible thing to do? My brother tells me to buy iTote, but let's be real here. An iTote, I think, is a balanced portfolio. From... It's a total U.S. stock market ETF. Got it. You went through something like this from your mother passing. You got an inheritance. You've talked about this a lot in the past. Is there more emotional attachment to that money? Does that come into play here at all? Oh, for sure. So I was 25 when my mother passed, and I had already become interested in investing. When she left me that little nest egg, I thought that I was going to take that hundred grand and turn it into $50 million. At that time, the positions that I were putting on just were way too much in dollar amount for me to be comfortable with, especially because it was my mom's money. Anytime I saw that money moving, it was very emotional for me. So I didn't take any big losses. I was very careful, but I also had trouble letting my winners run. Anyway, it's hard. It's emotional. It's confusing. But this person sounds like they're in a much better position than I was. I didn't even have this sort of a game plan. I was just trading triple levered inverse ETFs. Even beyond the emotional stuff about it, it's just everyone is dealing with big gains right now. And I think they're looking at it the right way and getting to the place where you're humble about your big gains. I think that's step one and realizing like, okay, I'm not a genius. Everything's going well. And I've, I happen to pick these good stocks. Good for me. So I mean, part of it is just, this is a young person understanding your risk profile and time horizon. What are you investing for in the first place? It's great that people have made all these gains, but it's like the next step are you just trying to get rich? Are you saving for specific goals? Try to figure out what the point of this money is first. And then you can figure out like, listen, if I'm going to be in these high-flying stocks, I know that my money is going to get incinerated at some point. Even if these ends up being like great stocks long-term, I'm going to lose 20, 30, 40, 50% at some point on the way up. I think it's about just setting reasonable expectations. And if you want to continue to own the high flyers, knowing that's going to happen someday, trying to go like, from risk on stocks to risk off stocks, I think that's a tough game to play. I think it's more about identifying your time horizon and the type of investor that you want to be with this money. I like the barbell approach. That's actually what I do with my tax. So I have a taxable account where I play with stocks and I've got super boring names on the one hand, Hasbro, for example. And then on the other end, I've got CrowdStrike. So I do something very similar in terms of when you should take profits, what you should invest it in. That's really tough for me to answer not knowing you, but I think that you're thinking about this right. Okay. I have an emotional investing question for you. I'm a self-identified long-term investor. I serve in the military as my day job, have beaten the S&P by 4% at five-year annualized and 2% at 10-year annualized. So this guy's outperformed pretty good. Holdings are pretty normal with Netflix, Zillow, Disney, Berkshire, other big names. I don't buy meme stocks short or use margin. 
It's as boring as it gets for not being an index fund. With a bull market making up the entire decade of annualized gains, when do I find out if I actually know what I'm doing and I've not just been unconsciously riding this wave? This is a great question. Like, when do you know, is it really skill or have I just been in a 10-year bull market? Again, this is the first step. This is another person who's being humble about this and not thinking I'm a genius just because of a bull market. That's not discount like the fact that you're doing well. That's kudos for that. I don't know that you ever know there's not a light bulb that goes off or a bell that's wrong that says, hey, you did it. Not only did you outperform, but you had better risk-adjusted returns. You're probably not calculating your risk-adjusted returns, but I don't even think it really matters. I hope not. Individuals should not be doing that. If you're a long-term investor and you're pretty much buy and hold with individual stocks and you beat the market, you don't beat the market, does it really matter? I mean, whether you get 7% or 8%, like you are already doing the right things. Right. If you're a buy and hold person and you're keeping your costs low and your transactions and you're relatively boring, yeah, I think you're doing fine and don't worry about it. Because you talk to a professional money manager and they go, you got to measure me over a full market cycle. And it's like, no one knows what that actually is. Is that the top of the top or the bottom of the bottom? Or I think if it's something you're comfortable with and it fits your personality and you're not going to bail when things go wrong, then stick with it. Can we talk about how underestimated the skill is of doing nothing? Like how hard it is to do nothing? That is a decision, right? Doing nothing is a decision with your money. Yeah. It's not throwing up your hands and giving up. I feel like every day you have to fight the urge to do something. When the market is plunging, it's hard to sit there and do nothing. When the market is going nuts and there's FOMO all around you, it's hard to sit there and do nothing. So kudos to you for not doing nothing. That's a conscious decision that you are making. You could say FOMO is at an all-time high now just for the sheer fact, not just that we're in a bull market, but there are so many things to invest in these days. You can invest in anything. You keep pinging me about these NFT things. And I'm like, I don't want to hear about it because (laughs) maybe it'll be the next best thing, but I've already got these other things I'm thinking about that I don't even care. At a certain point, you have to have that I don't care type of thing too, or I don't know. So yeah, so just keep doing what you're doing. I think you're doing fine. All right, with the tenure now around 1.2% and the curve steeper, shouldn't CD and money market rates slowly be creeping higher. It doesn't seem like they are. So interest rates are risen. You wrote about this this week, that interest rates are rising. It seems bizarre to me that people are worrying about rates at 1.2 or 1.3% in the 10-year. Are people really worrying? It's fake worry. But I mean, because yields have doubled on a relative basis, they think, well, yields have doubled since the lows. So we got to start worrying about this. Unfortunately, even though the 10-year is rising and long-term rates are rising, the Fed is still stamping down on short-term rates. And that means savings accounts and CD yields are going to stay low too. So you're not going to see much of a benefit there, unfortunately, because those types of things are tied to the Fed funds rate. And they have said, we're keeping this low until we see the whites in the eyes of inflation. And that could be a while. All right, let's do the last topic on investing. Here's a good one. How long of a track record does one need to prove that a certain strategy doesn't work? The AQR managed future strategy now is over 10 years of historical performance. Not pick on AQR because there are many other horrible examples in the same category. I suppose if you bought GLD in the summer of 2011, you'd still be losing, but somehow it seems different when it's a managed fund investing in multiple asset classes and charging fees. Can we please pronounce a strategy of failure already? How do they even market this thing? Again, not to pick on AQR because whatever, all managed future strategies have had really tough times, but this is a fair question. So Wow, this strategy, the assets in 2016, Ben, for AQR's managed futures were almost $15 billion. Now it's under two. So it looks like certainly investors have given up. There's no doubt about that. 
in terms of performance, it's been tough. I mean, there's no two ways about it. It's weird because this is a trend-following strategy, and you think, well, stocks have trended higher, but these things invest in a million different trends, commodities and futures and currencies and interest rates and stocks. So it's all these different things at once. Part of me wonders, have things changed for this strategy in terms of algorithmic trading and is this stuff known? It's hard to answer that. It's possible. This is a strategy that people dove in headfirst because in 2008, when the S&P was down 37%, the average managed futures fund was up like 15% because you can go short the market. And so, of course, the trend that year was down. And when you have a longer term downtrend like that, this thing will pick it up. When markets are moving faster and you're seeing these V-shaped recoveries, a trend following strategy like this probably not work very well. Maybe that's the kind of thing you have to ask yourself. If we're in these faster market cycles, these managed future strategies are probably not going to work. But stocks are just one small part of this portfolio. They're also in commodities and currencies and bonds. And I just said that. No, I know. But you're saying that markets are moving faster. You're talking about the stock market. But every market is moving faster. You'll think it's just the stock market? Well, I don't know. I'm not saying this is broken for... I'm saying it could be. If markets are moving faster for a good period of time, then managed futures probably will continue to underperform. So for the last 10 years, and I don't know if you want to say this is cherry picking 10 years, but I don't know what else to tell you. It's been a really, really rough 10 years. So the S&P is up 260% over the last 10 years. Maybe not a fair comparison. I'll give you that. But man, short-term bonds, Ben. Vanguard's short-term bonds are up 23% over the last decade. AQR's managed futures, and again, it could be any managed futures. I don't think that AQR is an outlier on the downside, but their managed futures over the last 10 years, 2%. This is like the negatively correlated asset class you wanted. You have to take it to the good or the bad, I guess. The best lesson here is non-correlation cuts both ways. And I haven't run the numbers, but I'm guessing that this is incredibly non-correlated to traditional stocks, bonds, whatever. So position size yourself right. Go into these alternatives knowing that it could be a really tough hang or don't go in at all. Is this dead forever? I don't know. I can't say that. This could be the case with a lot of the new alternative asset classes that are coming out. There's going to be one of them that is going to be terrible for a long period of time. I think that's what you get when you try to go into alts. It's feast or famine. All right. I have an undergrad degree in finance and I've been working, I won't say where, for the last four years. I started in general client services role, moved into retirement planning, and finally a high net sales role. I recently left to become a financial advisor at Blank. I was hoping you might have some advice for me as I begin an occupation that has changed so much due to fee compression, among other things, and has become increasingly more difficult to be successful. I don't know that the fee compression thing is really what we think it is. I haven't read the Kitsis article yet, but he said that fees actually, financial advisor fees rose last year. Based on the advisors being listed here, I think the fee compression he's talking about are commissions. Mm, Okay, good point. I think it's the change from a commission, because this is a wirehouse he's talking about, or she, talking about going from commission-based products where you're making a lot of money selling product to more of a fee only. So I think that may be the shift that they're talking about. Okay, so... I don't know if this person's on a team or not. Making it on your own as a young advisor seems basically impossible. I mean, I certainly don't have the interpersonal skills to have been out there on my own convincing people to give me their money. At the end of the day, this is a sales business. You're selling a service. You're selling yourself. Selling a story. Yeah. You're selling a story. So the idea that you need to be competent, I mean, that's table stakes. You need to be able to answer questions. You need to be able to give decent advice. But above all, you need to be able to sell yourself. And there are so many places 
Um, I don't think that we like necessarily compete, you know, with other advisors, but it, but we kind of do because there are so many different places where investors can go. They could turn to, I mean, Goldman just did a just started a robo arm. There's Betterment and and Wealthfront and Vanguard and Schwab and Fidelity and Self Directed and and all these other alternative platforms. I mean, there are a million different avenues for people these days. So with that, the biggest piece you need, someone has to trust you. They have to trust that you're going to solve their problems. You're going to be there for them when they need it. I also think we've seen such a huge shift in the last 10 or 15 years from fund picking and mutual funds and asset management is the only thing that matters to financial planning really mattering and caring about someone's circumstances and goals-based financial planning, which seems like an oxymoron. It kind of seems like a new, new thing for some reason. So I think it's about getting people to trust you and buy into what you're doing and that you'll be there for them to solve their problems and not only create a financial plan, but then help them plan when things get tough, they need to make a decision. So they just all about trusting you and working with someone that they know will care about them and their needs. On top of that though, that's even assuming that you can get in front of somebody. When I started out at the insurance company, just getting in front of somebody, and thank God I didn't get in front of too many people because I was a disaster, but just getting in front of somebody is really hard. How do you even convince somebody to sit down with you or Zoom with you? So it's just very, very difficult. I don't even remember what the exact question was. I think we kind of covered it, but competition is more than ever. So you have more opportunity to reach more people now, but you also have more competition than ever because, listen, the internet makes as level the playing field. All right, you want to do one real estate one and then we'll call it? Sure. All right. In the short term, call it three to five years, living in the city seems great. However, in the long term, five plus years, I can totally see myself in the suburbs once I have kids, especially as they near school age. So I started looking at the suburbs for the first time. I love the value out in the suburbs, but my biggest fear is the isolation. When I bring up buying in the suburbs with my friends, they lightly scoff at the idea, saying how boring it will be and how I will hate driving everywhere. In my mind, these friends are in the same boat. They're also going to have kids and want more space in the long term. I know Michael had lived in the city and then later moved out to the suburbs. When, how does this decision occur? I almost feel like my friends are going to be jealous of a home purchased in the suburbs, but they deny such. Are my friends short-sighted? Will they actually feel isolated in the suburbs? Okay. For me, when we got pregnant with our second child, it was time to leave the city. We were living in a small two-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn, probably had 700 square feet or so, and I have a big dog. The decision was made for us. Will you feel lonely? I don't know. I don't feel lonely. I love it. I love being alone. That's one of the biggest misnomers that people had probably seven years after the financial crisis was that millennials were always going to stay in the city and never buy houses and never buy cars. And guess what? People grow up. So I think this listener has the right idea in mind and their friends are going to learn. And if you're like all of my friends for college, most of them moved to Chicago. And I kind of was jealous because I wanted to move there too. And we'd go there, visit them. And every year, one person would drop out and move to the suburb somewhere. And then another person. And none of them live there anymore. And that's the way it happened. Are there some people who stay in the city? Sure. But generally, if you're going to settle down and have kids, it's probably much easier in the suburbs. And this person is probably getting ahead of the curve doing this. And maybe you'll feel a little uncomfortable if you're the first one, but your friends will be there eventually. And by the way, it's not like you're moving probably out into the sticks. My neighbors are 10 feet away from me. So there's people all around, all around where I live. But honestly, though, isn't it a little nice when you get older to just avoid people too? Of course. Isn't that great? <laughs> I never would have imagined that when I was younger. But like, that's one of the weirdest parts about the, the pandemic for me is that like, maybe I like being an introvert way more than I ever would have thought. <laughs> and uh, I'll probably regret that at some point, but it's true. We're joined now by Tom Burmeister. Tom is the Vice President of Financial Planning for Advicent, the makers of NavaPlan. 
Tom, thank you for lending your expertise to us today because a lot of these questions just are outside of the scope of Ben and I's comfort zone. So we appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely, guys. Thanks for having me. All right. First question. I'm curious to your opinions on converting my previous employer's sponsored 401k to a Roth. I'm 27, live in Texas, and I have roughly $35,000 in my 401k. My concern is I would have to pay the taxes with the funds I'm converting, which is roughly $8,500. In theory, when I retire, I would be in a higher tax bracket. Am I wasting my time and money converting? Uh, Great question. Not necessarily. I think you certainly have to play the long game here in that the prospects of having that money grow in in your entire pre-retirement period and then being able to withdraw it tax-free certainly is a pretty big benefit that you don't want to overlook. Now, certainly, I can understand the concerns about the potential tax liability. Yes, you would have to add that 35000 to your taxable income for that year. And then depending on how you pay the how you pay the taxes, you may be subject to the penalty, maybe not. But again, I think given your age, given the fact that you have such a, a long time till t- you'll, you'll likely retire, I think the benefits still do definitely outweigh the downsides here. And I'd also just add that you can, you can certainly do a, a partial Roth conversions at any time. So depending on your outlook for the market, if you are anticipating a pullback or if you're not anticipating one and it does happen, great opportunity for, for Roth conversions because you're converting at a time when the account is at a lower value than it is now. So both additional things to keep in mind here as you approach this, this topic, but a uh, great question. And Michael and I learned a few weeks ago, people have very strong opinions on the Roth things. And I think a lot of advisors come down on the Roth side of things. Okay, here's one I think a lot of people may be dealing with in the coming years. As someone who follows a number of personal finance and fire podcasts and blogs, I notice no one talks about the big financial impact of caring for elderly parents. As a 40-something-year-old with aging parents who retired without enough financial assets, my husband and I are freaked out about how to provide proper care for our parents without ruining our lives and bankrupting our retirement account. They're still living independently at the moment, but with their health failing slowly but maturely, it's just a matter of time before we are going to have to step in to provide whatever assistance they needed. Excellent question here as well. And I, I, I got to back up on this one a little bit. So for all your listeners, guys, number one, for adult children who have parents that are still around, have this conversation now. Have it early. You really can't have this conversation too early where you sort of create a mutual understanding of how you want to handle things as your parents start to advance in age. Because all of the parents now that are dealing with their parents who had problems with their parents transitioning into assisted living are now going through the exact same thing. You can't guarantee that somebody's opinions on this or mental state is going to be the same when you finally get around to actually experiencing these major, major life events. So number one, have this conversation now. Number two, parents with adult children, don't ever say to your kids, promise me you won't put me in a nursing home. Kids, if they do say that, I'm not telling you to say no, but I would counter that with what I promise to do. I can definitely promise you that I'll always have your best interest in mind for any decision that we need to make together because you'll just never know kind of how how the aging process is going to affect different people. And you really can't, it doesn't make any sense to try and make certain promises that you really don't know if you can keep at a young age. As for this particular question here, there's a lot of possibilities out there. And I think you got, you really need to you really need to account for all of the, the ways this is impacting your life. And I think the way this question is worded certainly called on that. It's the emotional toll. It's the financial toll. If you're taking time away from work or not being as productive as you otherwise could be at work, there's the opportunity cost there. Certainly from your own retirement standpoint, you could be sacrificing potential future gains there as well as you point out. So make sure you weigh all of those topics as you're uh, making the decision to provide either financial or other care for, for your parents, but also realize that There's a lot of great resources out there, not only financial advisors that specialize in taking care of aging parents and and are really well well educated on all of the different options uh, that are available to you. Also, different institutions like the administration on aging, and the list goes on. So make sure that you're using these resources so that at the very least, 
you have an action plan for kind of what you're going to do, how much it's going to cost. And you've made a commitment to if you are going to invest financially in caring for your parents, you understand what that commitment looks like going forward and also the impact that it has on your overall financial plan. So, so many like life, life lessons associated with this one. But again, if you are in a spot where your parents have not gotten to that advanced aging stage, you've got to have this conversation now. Yeah. And you're going to have an uncomfortable conversation one way or the other, right? It's going to be down the road or now. So yeah, you might as well do it now. In terms of resources or planning techniques, what else aside from long-term care should people think about? Because for some, that might be prohibitively expensive. For others, they might not qualify. Is that the only tool in the box or are there other things that, that people can think about? No, certainly long-term care is definitely a, a good option to look at. I, I know that wasn't part of your question, but when it comes to, again, having that conversation early, first of all, allows you to figure out when's the best time to apply for a long-term care insurance. A lot of experts say it's between 60 and 65, but there's also 20% of applications that are approximately 20% that are rejected for people that are 60 or older. So all things to keep in mind, but one of the best ways if you really want to contribute to caring for your parents might even be to help fund one of those policies if they're eligible for it and if it makes financial sense. But if we're veering outside of that, certainly depending on your appetite for risk, sometimes I, I, I hesitate to throw the word annuity out there, but if your parents are very risk averse, if you're not willing to invest in and the time it takes to, to manage uh, to manage their money without a professional, potentially annuitizing that money to make sure that you at least know how much income they're going to have on a, on a regular basis could help. Also, managed accounts, putting the management of your parents' assets into the hands of a professional that you trust so that you're taking that aspect of it off the table. You're entrusting that money to somebody who knows the longevity concerns that you have, knows the issues you're currently facing. It can also help you sort of do that reverse annuitization where you're figuring out, okay, what is a safe amount that we can withdraw? And then how can we design our lifestyle around that? So I'm probably missing a couple, but those are the first couple that uh, that come to, come to mind. Good one. Thanks. All right. Last one. Somebody asked us about 457B plans. And before we get to the question, Tom, what are we talking about here? What are 457B plans? Yeah. So 457B, again, great topic because 457Bs, you got to keep in mind there's two types. Number one is a, a government for people that are employed by uh, a government entity. And the other one is is going to be for, for nonprofits. So the important thing to keep in mind there is, is that there are different rules uh, for, for withdrawals uh, when it comes to what type of employer you have. So the first thing uh, to keep in mind is that the key distinction between a 457B and things like a 401k, a 403B is that early withdrawals, although they are subject to tax, are not subject to that 10% early withdrawal penalty that's associated with the other common retirement defined contribution accounts that we hear about a lot. All right. So here's the actual question. My work offers one and I've been maxing it out, but I'm starting to wonder if it's worthwhile. According to the rules of my employer-based plan, I have to start distributions immediately upon leaving the job and finish distributions within 20 years. This is great if I am planning on working here until retirement, but I'm only 32 years old and doubt I will be here for another 30 years. I'm in a high marginal tax bracket and believe that my income will continue to rise. So if I leave for another job, it seems like I will actually pay more taxes on this money in the future. Is this the right way to think about this? Is there another advantage to this plan that I'm missing? Sure. So I think there's a lot to keep in mind here. Again, there's different rollover rules based on the type of employer that you have. So certainly pay attention to that. But the mandatory withdrawal, if, if you have what's called, the, I think technically a separation of service is, is kind of the, the fancy term for, for what they call that in the 457B world and probably other worlds as well. But, but you can roll that, potentially roll that over into a different account. You roll that over into either into a Roth IRA potentially, or if you go to another another employer that offers a 457B, you can actually roll it over into that as well. So you, that 
you may be able to skirt that problem entirely without having to worry about the tax implications of withdrawing early. Now, like I mentioned earlier with the Roth conversion, if you are required to take those distributions, yes, it will be adding to your taxable income. But if you think your income is going to rise over time, then taking those withdrawals sooner than later may actually may actually work out. So 457B is a great a great plan though, especially if there's an uh, if there's a match involved. You should I think you're doing a great job by maxing it out and taking advantage of that. So so I wouldn't worry as much about what happens if you do have a separation of service. Know that there are options though, and that depending on your tax situation at the time, we'll have a couple of different approaches to make sure that that you're doing the best thing for you. Great, Tom. Thank you so much for coming on. Guys, it's been a pleasure. Big fan. Uh, but uh, great to talk with you again. All right. Thank you to Advicent, the makers of Navaplan, for sponsoring today's Animal Spirits listener mailbag. Animalspiritspod at gmail.com. Have a great weekend, everybody. And we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.